proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Uh, in fact, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have sung songs together because there, there was no congregational singing in the church in those days. Um, we wouldn't listen to a sermon like the one we're about to listen to because there was no preaching in the church in those days. And, and worse of all, we wouldn't have heard a clear, accurate presentation of the gospel as our only hope of salvation, which means we would have lived and died and been damned to hell for all eternity. That was the reality of living during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages or medieval times. You see, back in the 1500s, 1600s, the church under the Roman papacy or the Pope as we know it today had corrupted what the Bible teaches about how a person is saved from sin and death and, and hell. And church was all about beliefs and traditions that were established by popes and, and church councils rather than what the Bible says. And maintaining these, these man-made rituals and, and traditions was the means by which a person earned or merited their salvation. The only hope a person had of going to heaven was living a, a, life, a good life, living a life of good works or, or having someone else pray or buy their way out of purgatory. If they weren't good enough to get to heaven, they would go to this holding tank called purgatory and, and they could, their only hope was if somebody, a family member, a friend, would, would pray them out of purgatory or, or would buy them out of purgatory. Mary, the saints, and the priests were worshipped. They were honored as, as human mediators between God and man. Christ was re-sacrificed during every Mass. Every time the church came together, they, they had communion, or the Eucharist as it was called, uh, and, and still called in the Catholic Church today. And, and, and so th during that, that, that Mass ceremony, the, the, the Christ, they believed in what was called transubstantiation, which meant that the body, uh, or the, the, the bread, actually uh, turned into the body of Christ and the juice or the wine in those days actually turned into the blood of Christ, transubstantiation. And, and so that's what the, 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 the priest taught. That's what the, uh, the church believed. And so they were essentially re-sacrificing Jesus Christ every, every Saturday or Sunday, which obviously denied that Christ's finished work on the cross is sufficient for salvation. The once for all Death on the cross. If you've ever been to a Catholic church, uh, even to this day, you walk in and the very first thing is you see what? On the back wall or the front wall. You, you see the same thing that you see here at our church, but what's the difference? Jesus is still hanging on that cross. As opposed to an empty cross, which reminds us that yes, he died, but he what? Rose again. And he doesn't need to continue to suffer uh, and be re-sacrificed for our sins. He did it once and for all. And so we all should be exceedingly grateful that by God's grace, we live in a time in church history where the gospel, for the most part, is, is clearly and accurately preached. And we must never forget that the reason we have the true gospel available to us today uh, through sermons and through even songs that we sing, gospel-centered songs, is because of a courageous band of men and women who recovered the biblical gospel 
and put their, literally, literally put their lives on the line in order to defend and preserve it. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And here Peter was writing a, a second letter to uh, the saints who were scattered all over Asia, who were experiencing persecution, and he was wanting to remind them about the, the essentials of salvation. And he was talking about how they enter into eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 11. And then notice what he says in verse 12. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to what? To remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And so Paul, or excuse me, Peter was simply saying, listen, I'm just, I'm always, I'm just always ready to remind you of these, these precious truths of salvation. Even though you already know them, this is nothing new. But and and you've been established in the in these truths, that they're present in you. But, but I want to remind you of these things, and, and, and I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I don't just want to remind you, oh, okay, great, thanks for the reminder. No, I want you to be stirred up by the reminder of these things, of these great truths of salvation, these, these great truths on which your salvation is based. And I trust that that's what will happen uh, over these next uh, six weeks as we are reminded of the great truths of salvation that were recovered by the Reformers 500 years ago. This year, 2017, marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Um, all over the world, uh, there are special conferences and uh, celebrations being held. There's Reformation tours being offered um, The sad thing to me is that, not just that I can't go on one of those Reformation tours, uh, I wish I could, (laughs) I wish I could take you all with me, let's all go on a Reformation tour, it would be like second only to going to Israel. Some of us have gone to Israel together as a church, it's just an amazing experience. I can't think of another more amazing experience than a Reformation tour, traveling all over Europe and and learning about the the history of the Reformation, but what's sad to me is that that most Christians, so-called Christians, are unaware of of, of the Reformation. Um, and, and all that is wrapped up in the Reformation, unless, of course, you, maybe you go to a, a Lutheran church like I did growing up, or, or, or maybe you attended a Reformed church. If you go to a, any other church than those denominations, you probably don't know much about the Reformation. And what's even sadder to me is that most Christians are unaware of the theological truths surrounding the gospel that were rediscovered by the Reformers. And this is tragic considering the fact that these truths are not only essential for our salvation, but they serve as a foundation for any true church. And over the past several 
decades, the, the current distressing state of the evangelical church has, has motivated some to call for a modern reformation. And if you do any reading uh, from the likes of guys like um, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Erwin uh, Lutzer, um, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, David Wells, uh, these are pastors, seminary professors uh, who are concerned about the, the state of the evangelical, the church. And that's a term that's often misunderstood, evangelical. It doesn't mean evangelistic, necessarily. It means that you believe in the euangelion, the gospel. That's what it means. If you're an, e, if you're an evangelical, it means you believe in the biblical gospel. What does the Bible teach about the gospel? How a person is saved? That's what it means to be an evangelical. It doesn't mean you go out and share your faith. So some people think, well, that's what it means to be evangelical. Oh, we share our faith. Well, that's part of it. That's the the result or, or, or I guess the practical application of being an evangelical. If you believe the gospel, you want to share it. And the concern of many today in, in, in leadership amongst the evangelical church is that that term has become so broad uh, and, it, and it, uh, lots of people call themselves evangelicals who are not committed to a biblical gospel. In fact, there are some that are even saying that uh, we need to come up with a new term because uh, the evangelical thing, we need to leave that behind because it's corrupted, it's been tainted, it's been compromised. We need to come up with a new term, if you will, or a new label uh, to put on those who are really, truly committed to the gospel. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, I don't know if you know who that guy was, he was the former pastor of... 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, but he was a, a, a tremendous, he, I would just call him a modern-day reformer. And uh, he passed away, uh, I guess maybe 10 years, 10, 12 years from now. Um, but the last book he wrote was a book called Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace. And in fact, that's one of the books that I was going to recommend to you this summer if you're interested in going a little deeper in this study on your own of the, of the solas, the five solas. This is a great book, Whatever Happened to the Gospel, Recovering the Doctrines that Shook the World. And he talks about uh, how the church is in desperate need of a, of, a, of a reformation today. And he says we need to get back to the, the truths that were rediscovered, recovered in the Reformation. And uh, he just talks about how so many churches have become worldly and they desperately need to recover the rich spiritual heritage by repenting of their, their worldliness and, and again, rediscovering the same truths of the gospels the reformers did. And, and these truths can be summarized in what are commonly referred to as the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, and sola dea gloria, which... Again, what does that all mean? It sounds like some fancy Latin words, right? Well, sola simply means what? Only or alone. And so what the reformers were saying is that, hey, listen, it's, it's salvation is based on Scripture alone. It's, it's based in, in Christ alone, on, on, on grace alone, through faith alone, and, and for the glory of God alone. That's what they were simply saying. And to quote Boyce, he says this, without these five confessional statements, we do not have a true church. 
and certainly not one that will survive very long, for how can any church be a true and faithful church if it does not stand for the scripture alone, is not committed to a biblical gospel, and does not exist for God's glory? A church without these convictions has ceased to be a true church, whatever else it may be. I trust you share my passion, the passion of our pastoral staff, the passion of our elders and our deacons, our grow group leaders, right, that that we would be a true church, amen? And that's why we thought it was fitting for us to study the five souls this summer in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And and, and even though we are, uh, you know, an independent, non-denominational Bible church, we're not a Lutheran church, we're not a Reformed church, right? Um, we think it's important to understand that we stand in the rich theological tradition of the Reformation. And so what I want to do tonight is just kind of get us started by, by providing a, a general overview of the Reformation, along with the, the core biblical truths that were the heart of the Reformation, and, and uh, these same biblical truths must be the heart of our church. They must be at the heart of our lives as Christians. And hopefully we'll see, not only tonight, but every evening as we look at um, each one of these solas individually, specifically, separately, that we'll see why they still matter today. That these are relevant for our lives today. This is not just some dusty, crusty, boring, you know, history lesson for the next six weeks. But hopefully these truths will come to life. And you'll get excited about them. And hopefully uh, you grab one of these little half sheets in the back. Um, this kind of gives you an over, overview. And maybe um, if you didn't grab one of these, um, Fred, can I get you to grab these and maybe pass them out? Maybe Ken Park and you're back there too. Maybe you grab these. And if you didn't get one of these walking in, raise your hand. Let these guys give you one of these. Uh, this is something you can just stick in the front of your Bible uh, for the next six weeks. And it'll just provide you kind of a... A roadmap, if you will. Uh, this is our kind of the skeleton uh, of what we're going to be covering uh, over the course of the next six weeks. And so, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of this series? It's to help people understand and appreciate the five key biblical truths that were rediscovered by the reformers and why they still matter to us today. And then, as you see, we're just going to uh, start off tonight. Um, I've titled tonight's message, Recovering the Gospel, because that's essentially what the Reformation was. God providentially used the Reformers to, to recover the doctrine of salvation, our only hope. And then in the weeks to come, we're going to be uh, tackling each one of these solas one at a time, and uh, we've got some guys to, to help me out here, and I'm excited to uh, give some other guys an opportunity to get up here and, and teach on these subjects. And so, um, again, what's the, what's the end game here? Look at the very bottom. It is by this gospel we are saved, and it is for this gospel that we must contend in order to ensure it gets faithfully passed on to the next generation. So that's just giving you a little overview uh, of kind of where we're going, give you the big picture, right? Uh, so you can see the forest before we, we, get, we don't get lost bumping into trees along the way, right? So that's the big, the big flyover. So let's talk about the Reformation, okay? What, what is the Reformation? Let me just give you just a basic, I guess, explanation of the Reformation, okay? The Reformation was a religious movement 
that occurred in Europe in the 15-1600s that aimed at reforming the doctrines and the practices of the church and that eventually resulted in a great division in the church that remains today. This was the original church split, okay? This was the granddaddy split of all, where the church was going along and, uh, the, the, and it began to, maybe if you look at it, so here's the church, okay? We had Pentecost, the church was born, and the church began to go forward with the apostles, and, and they were teaching, and, and, and all of a sudden, over the years, right, after the first century, the second century, third century, fourth century, fifth century, sixth century, what, what started to happen, right? The church begins to veer away from the truth. And so as the church began to veer away from the truth, some people on that ship noticed, hey, what happened? We're not headed due north anymore. That's, that's not what the, the compass says. The Bible, we're, we're teaching things and doing things that the Bible doesn't say. And so they said, hey, we need to get off the ship. <laughs> we need to get the ship back on course or we need to find a new ship. And so essentially what happened is they, they, the church was going this way and they broke off and they, they said, hey, we're going to get back to heading due north. It's referred to as the Protestant Reformation. And uh, again, since its birth on the day of Pentecost, the church had, had slowly drifted away from the truth taught by Jesus Christ and the apostles and ultimately, which we find here in the inspired word of God, the Bible. And by the 15th and 16th century, amidst the vast political upheaval and cultural changes, the church had fallen under the control of the Roman papacy or the Pope, and the church had become completely corrupt and heretical, teaching a false gospel, distorting the, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. A person had to do uh, certain things in order to earn their way to heaven, and so Christ's work on the cross was no longer sufficient. And during this, this time, a, a movement arose with, within the, the Roman Catholic Church to, to purify the church and, and bring her back in line with God's word. And those who sought to reform the church were either kicked out of the church or they were killed. And those who survived ended up starting their, their own churches, which eventually became, became known as Protestant churches, obviously because they were what? Protesting what was being said and done in the church in the day. And that's why we still even today have, have this division in the church amongst Christianity, if you will. You have Catholic churches and you have Protestant churches. And uh, that's a result of this schism in the church. And according to uh, Philip Schaff, who's a, a renowned church historian, he's written a, like six volumes of, of church history, kind of like an encyclopedia of church history. He said this, quote, the Reformation of the 16th century is next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. The greatest event in history, apart from the birth of the church at Pentecost, the Reformation, according to Philip Schaff, who's the, 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 the man when it comes to church history, says this is the greatest event in history. And while it was mainly a, a movement within the Christian church, it really impacted every other area of society. It had a, had a profound influence on politics, on art, on literature. It's really impossible to understand the, the modern history of Europe and England and even America, our own country, apart from the Protestant Reformation. We wouldn't be here in America if it weren't for the Puritans and the Pilgrims, who were really at the tail end of the Reformation. They were fleeing Europe 
for their lives because they wanted to be faithful to the, to the word of God. Even in our world today, in the city of Geneva, for example, there are remnants of the Reformation or there are reminders of the Reformation. And I'll never forget, Kelly and I had a chance to, to swing through Geneva on our way to um, South Africa one year. And uh, we have a friend who's a, a missionary there, and uh, he gave us a tour around Geneva, and we got to go to Calvin's Cathedral, and uh, it was just an amazing uh, little uh, tour. I got to actually stand in Calvin's pulpit, which is mounted on, a, on the wall, you know, about 30 feet above the congregation. It's a really cool uh, scene, uh, setting. But I remember him pointing out, he says, hey, can you understand, uh, you know, he was tell- he's telling us and this other couple that were with us, he said, you know about Rolex watches and about Swiss watches just in general, and, and they're the best in the world. Why is that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> he said, it's because of John Calvin. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, because John Calvin taught his people that there was no distinction between secular work and sacred work, that all work was sacred. And everything you did, you did for the glory of God. And so you did it as unto him, and you did it to the very best of your ability. And so that's why the Swiss tend to excel in their craftsmanship. It's just, a, a, again, a, a, a reminder, if you will, or a, a, an outflow of the Reformation. That was a very interesting uh, comment that he made. The point is that God raised up, sovereignly raised up, a number of men to get the church back on track before the 15th and 16th century. So before Martin Luther ever showed up, there was a guy named John Wycliffe. You've heard of him back in the 1300s. He began criticizing the errors of the church. This was 200 years before the official Reformation began in 1517. Um, his, His greatest contribution was translating the Bible into English. And so he helped pave the way for the coming Reformation, which is why he's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. That's what John Wycliffe is is known for. In fact, there's a a group, a missionary organization called Wycliffe Translators, um, and they're uh, serving in the heritage of of John Wycliffe, who wanted to translate the scriptures into English. And this organization goes around the the world translating uh, the Bible into the language of, of, of the people. There's another guy named John Huss, late 1300s, early 1400s. He preached against the abuses of the churches, the papacy, uh, in other words, the Pope being you know, essentially the king of the church um, instead of Christ, right, being the, the Lord, the head of the church. Um, purgatory, uh, pilgrimages, in other words, people had to go to certain holy sites. They had to make pilgrimages to these holy sites where they could worship saints and relics which, by the way, is still happening today. There's places all over Europe, and particularly in Rome, where uh, people come and they make these pilgrimages and they walk up or crawl up steps to the, to the point where their knees are bloodied uh, because they're trying to earn some kind of favor with God. And so John Huss preached against these things. Uh, church authorities accused him of being a heretic at the Council of Constance and had him burned at the stake. At that same time, they also ordered Wycliffe's remains to be dug up and burned. It wasn't good enough that we killed the guy, right? 
we're going to dig this guy up and burn him. And, and by the way, that was 44 years after his death. That's how hostile uh, the leaders of the church were at the time against these men that, that were speaking up for the truth. And so God used these men along with others to prepare the church for what would occur over the next 200 years. And the Reformation officially began on October 31st, 1517. That's why uh, you, you may hear every October 31st, they call it Reformation Day. Uh, because it's in honor of the day that, that Martin Luther, who was a, a, a monk who was serving in the Catholic Church, he became increasingly disillusioned with the doctrines of the church, and so he nailed a list of 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And in those days, you're like, that's kind of weird. Why would you like, you know, am I going to go and put some 95 theses on the front of the church out here? <laughs> if I had some grievance with the church, I'm going to stick it on the door. Well, in, in those days, the, the door functioned kind of as a public bulletin board where important notices were, were displayed. It's kind of like a college courtyard. Have you ever been to a college courtyard and they got these things, you know, and they put all these posters up for the concerts or the parties or uh, rental things that you pull off a little phone number or whatever, right? Uh, it was kind of that, that kind of environment. And, and what was significant about Luther's 95 theses uh, is that they listed all the things that were unbiblical about the sacrilegious sale of indulgences. That, that, that's what those 95 statements, if you will, uh, were all about. He was, he was exposing the unbiblical nature of, this, of, of, these, of these, uh, the selling of indulgences. And if you're not familiar with that, it, basically what they were, would do is they would sell these things called indulgences, and if you purchased them, they said that uh, you could um, help people get out of purgatory. And they were trying to build this, this beautiful cathedral in St. Peter's Basilica is what they were trying to build, St. Peter's Basilica. And so they needed, to make, they needed to raise money. And so they got guys to go out and sell these indulgences. And a guy named Tetzel was probably the most well-known uh, indulgence seller. He was an indulgent, indulgent salesman. Um, and what he would say as he got up in the middle of a, of a town square, and he would call the people together and he said this, quote, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And that was his little sales pitch, his little jingle. And so people would just come in droves and he would preach these fiery you know, messages about you know, your loved ones burning in hell if you don't buy one of these indulgences. And so people would, of course, give them, give them all their money. And so Luther was like, well, this is ridiculous. What are we doing? This is, not, this is so unbiblical, so disingenuous, so hypocritical. And so he nails these 95 theses to the door. And that simple act of nailing that poster, if you will, onto the door of his church launched a series of events that culminated in him being condemned and excommunicated from the church. And if you know anything about Luther, you know that his leading role in the Reformation really was born out of a study of the book of Romans. And in the quiet solitude of the monastery, he was a, a monk, and he was, but he was guilt-ridden. And, and he had discovered the glorious truth of the gospel, that a person is made right with God by faith rather than by doing good works. 
And here was a guy who, man, he was, it was, he was all about good works. I mean, it's said of Luther that, that the priests would, would, would tell Luther to, to, to stop coming to confession. Because he'd like come multiple times a day and like, oh, Luther, what is your problem, man? Surely you couldn't have done that, anything that bad in the last half hour to have to come back to confession. He was just guilt-ridden and he would, he would actually, he would beat himself, he would whip himself. And he would go on pilgrimages and he would worship the relic. He did all those things, trying to, to somehow ease his guilty conscience. And when he discovered the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that, that, that talks about uh, the righteousness of Christ. Let me just read that for you, because this is really what exploded his mind when he got here in verse 17 of chapter 1, talking about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for, it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Not by works. And so he ended up leaving the monastery and began teaching others based on the authority of the scriptures. Not on the church tradition, but on the authority of what the scriptures, what does the scriptures say? So he became a preacher and he began to exposit the scriptures and, and, and show how the church had departed from its doctrinal foundations. And he claimed to have recovered New Testament Christianity, namely that, that the scripture teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And when the Roman authorities demanded that he recant of his position, he refused. This was at the deed of worms. We'll probably talk about this next week, where Luther made that classic statement. He said, unless shown by Scripture and by reason that I am wrong, I will not recant. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That's a good example, a good illustration of what they meant by sola scriptura. That unless you can show me from Scripture, I ain't buying it. And so even though they condemned him and, and declared him a heretic and an outlaw, they weren't able to stop the fire that he had started. And, and when the Catholic rulers of, of, of Germany were ordered by the Holy Roman Emperor to enforce the Edict of Worms, uh, some of them protested and became known as Protestants. And so from its humble beginnings there in Germany, the Reformation quickly spread throughout Europe and, and, and the world, and eventually Geneva, Switzerland replaced Wittenberg as the center of the Protestant Reformation, and, and John Calvin replaced Martin Luther as the face of the Reformation. By the way, there was some things that happened during the Reformation. It was uh, not all good, and what I mean by that is Luther had to go in hiding, and while he was in hiding, some of his followers started going into some of the Catholic churches that were continuing to teach this heresy and they would just destroy the churches. They would just vandalize the churches and they would burn the churches. And that, that was grievous to Luther. He said, guys, this is not how to do this. This is not how to reform the church. We don't go and bomb churches or, you know, as they do today, right? And so he was grieved by that. And that's always true. There's always seems to be, no matter whenever God raises up a, a godly leader with a with, with a biblical view, he always ends up getting some followers who take it too far. And, and so Luther had some of those. 
But eventually, like I said, Calvin became the face of the Reformation there in Geneva, and he was an expositional preacher. And uh, he wrote uh, amazing tomes uh, defining and defending the doctrines of the Reformation. No other theologian in the history of the church wrote more extensively or effectively about biblical doctrine than Calvin did. In fact, I was reminded of this recently. Uh, John Calvin felt like God wanted him to write and kind of be the writer behind the Reformation and put all this stuff in writing and and he was a gifted writer, and so he was going to go to, I think it was Salzburg, uh, kind of a quiet, remote place, kind of out of the way. He wouldn't have to worry about being arrested or, or persecuted in any way, but he could just write. And in the providence of God, he had to go through Geneva one evening, and his friend, uh, there was a guy named uh, Will Farrell, not the Will Farrell that we know today, right? But his name was Will, William Farrell. And he cornered Calvin, and he said, hey, what are your plans? And Calvin said, I'm going to go, you know, live out my days in, in uh, you know, in, in Salzburg and, and, and uh, write for the Reformation. And, and, and Tetzel, or excuse me, uh, yeah, uh, Pharaoh said to him, he said, I, I pray that God curses your ministry if you go and, and kind of live in, in, in the comfort over there. And because and, and, Geneva, we need you here in Geneva. You need to stay in Geneva. This is the center of the Reformation. You need to stay here. Kind of the epicenter. And, uh, and so Pharaoh shamed, essentially shamed Luther, into, or uh, shamed Calvin into staying there in Geneva, and the rest is history. But uh, Calvin's teaching about salvation was, specifically his teaching about salvation, was organized under five categories at the Synod of Dort, which is another church council, as a biblical response to the five points of Arminianism. Now, you've heard of the five points of Calvinism, right? Well, before there was ever five points of Calvinism, there was five points of Arminianism. And, and where that came from was there, there was a guy named Jacob Arminius who didn't like the teaching of the Reformation. And so he was a professor at a seminary there in Europe, and uh, he had some disciples who took his teachings and they categorized them under five points and, uh, and, and presented them to the church uh, council, the Synod of Dort, and said, we think you should accept this as the theology of the church. And of course, thankfully, in the providence of God, the guys who were leading that council were biblical guys, and they, they knew that this was heresy, that Jacob Arminus' teaching and so they thought, well, who, who has written on this that can refute this stuff? And they said, well, let's, let's, get, let's go to John Calvin. So they took John Calvin's writings. It wasn't like John Calvin sat down and said, I'm going to write five points of Calvinism. They took his, his writings and they just used them as a rebuttal to the five points of Arminius. And we know them today as the five points of Calvinism or the tulip, right? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, the doctrines of grace, they're often referred to. And so, so Calvinism, as it's commonly referred to, really remains the clearest expression of the doctrinal distinctions of the Reformation. 
And, and Protestants fleeing persecution sought refuge in Geneva. It really became the Protestant Rome, if you will. It became Mecca for the, for the Protestant Reformation. And so a lot of these guys attended the academy that Calvin had established there. They ended up returning to their countries, bringing the Reformation with them, causing it to spread to England and Scotland and Holland, and again, continued to uh, onto America through the Puritans. And, and so Wycliffe and Huss built the bonfire, Luther lit the match, and Calvin blew on it. If you want to kind of think about how these guys all played a role. So that, that, that's the Reformation, just in a nutshell. Let's talk about what is Reformed theology, okay? So if we're talking about, okay, that's the Reformation. Okay, so what is Reformed theology? Well, Again, simply stated, Reformed theology is the biblical truths related to the gospel that were rediscovered or revived during the Reformation. And while the Reformers didn't agree on every doctrine, I mean, they didn't all agree on church government, they didn't all agree on baptism. In fact, you had Luther who continued to baptize babies and actually said that babies can believe, which I can't believe that Luther would say that. But... Whereas the Anabaptists were looking at the scriptures and they, they wanted to finish the Reformation. They, they said Luther didn't go far enough. So we're going to finish this thing and we're going to get rebaptized. The way the Bible says they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, they got baptized. None of this baptizing babies before they can even understand the gospel. So you've got them all over the map on the Lord's Supper, even. So, so they didn't agree on everything, but they did all agree on the essential matters pertaining to the gospel. And again, they summarized their, their common beliefs using these five Latin phrases or, or slogans in order to clearly distinguish themselves from the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So these are statements that express the fundamental grievances that they had with the errors of the Roman Church. And so the five solas were really the, the driving force behind the Reformation. And we're going to, again, like I said, take the next five weeks to look at these one at a time, but just, just quickly, sola scriptura simply was, was the, a statement that was all about the Bible being the only inerrant, infallible standard of faith and practice. In other words, this thing right here is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should behave. Not church traditions, not what the popes say, not what the church councils say, not what the creeds are, not the customs of the church. It's the inspired word of God that is the ultimate authority for everything. And furthermore, under the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Bible can be interpreted by individual believers and not just by the church. In those days, the only guy that had a Bible was the priest. The people didn't have a copy of Scripture. And so the reformers were responsible for translating the Bible into, into Latin, or for, excuse me, from Latin into English to make it accessible to lay people, not just the clergy. So that's sola scripture. Sola Christus, sola Christus, Christ alone. The whole point there was that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Not Mary, not the saints, not priests. No one can bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God but Jesus Christ. Christ interceded once for all by dying on the cross as a substitute to bear the punishment that sinners deserve, and the person and work of Jesus Christ is sufficient in and of itself for salvation. That's what solus 
Christus was all that. And then you've got sola gratia, grace alone. Again, salvation results only from God's unearned and undeserved grace. It's a free gift from God. You can't do anything to earn it or work for it. Human beings are, are spiritually dead. We're incapable of cooperating with God in salvation. God does everything all by himself. Salvation is monergistic, mono, one, it's all God. Not synergistic, we're not cooperating with God. Salvation is not dependent on any human work. God accomplishes it all by his sovereign grace. And then there's sola fide, of course, faith alone. God's grace can only be received by faith. Good works can't save anybody. God saves those who place their faith alone in Christ's work on their behalf. At the same time, the reformers made it clear that those who place their faith alone in Christ's work will also live a life marked by good works. You've heard me say this a hundred times, what the reformers said. I love this. A person is saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. That was the hallmark of the Reformation. And, and this is essentially what they, how they stood apart from the Catholic Church of their day. If you want to put it into a little math problem, okay, this was, this was how you got saved in the church in those days. Faith plus works equals salvation. That's how people got saved. Faith plus works equals salvation. And, and they changed that around, and they basically said faith equals salvation plus works. See the difference? Well, when do works come into play? After you're saved, as a result of your salvation, as evidence that you're truly saved. And then you've got soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Since salvation is accomplished solely by God's will, by God's grace, he alone deserves the glory. We shouldn't worship popes, saints, priests, only God is to be worshipped and honored. And God's glory was the, the underlying motive of the Reformation and the sole purpose of the Reformers. They, they lived their lives for the glory of God. In fact, when they got to the point where they wanted to kind of distill the, the beliefs of the Reformation, they came up with this thing we call Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the very first question, this was a, a, a question and answer format to teach their kids and use as an instruction manual in the church. The very first question was what? You remember? What is the chief end of man? And the answer was what? The chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That, that was the very first thing on their minds. That was at the very forefront of everything they thought, everything they did. And so the five solas... And I would say, along with the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace, really were the hallmarks of the Reformation and are the essence of Reformed theology. They must be central to everything we say, everything we do, everything we think as a church and as Christians. This is another book that I would recommend. This is a, a book that was written in honor of R.C. Sproul and his, his lifelong ministry. Probably no one... Uh, has been used by God more to bring the church in America back to the Reformation and the truths of the, the gospel than, than R.C. Sproul. And so they wrote this book in honor of him and his ministry, and guess what the chapters are about? 
Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, Sola Dea Gloria, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Definite Atonement, or Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. So, it's all five solas and the five doctrines of grace. Great, great little resource. Kind of pulling together Reformed theology. So, we talked about what is the Reformation? What is Reformed theology? And so let me just ask one more question, okay? And, and try to answer it. What does it mean to be Reformed? Okay, if we understand the Reformation... We understand what is Reformed theology. Well, what does it mean to be Reformed? I think generally speaking, an individual or a church that is Reformed embraces the theology that rose out of the Reformation. I think it's, it's the most basic level. That's what we're talking about. And again, what are we talking about? We're talking about the five solas and we're talking about the doctrines of grace. The five solas were developed as a biblical reaction to the false doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. The five doctrines of grace were developed as a biblical reaction to the false doctrines of Arminianism. And so we need to understand why these, these five things, what's so special about these five things, these five souls, these five points of Calvinism? Well, they came as a response, as a reaction to, to heresy. And let's, let's just uh, outline and define what the Bible actually teaches about these things. And so consequently, being Reformed means completely denying Roman Catholic theology, again, which Reformed theology rose in opposition to, the five solas, and also completely denying Arminian theology, which rose in opposition to Reformed theology, which we know today as the five points of Calvinism. And so practically speaking, every Christian... Every church is either Arminian or Calvinistic. Um, most Christians, most churches today would, I think, lean more towards their Ar- Arminianism in their doctrine and their practice. The minority are, are Reformed and Calvinistic. You, you would find them in Presbyterian churches, uh, Reformed Baptist churches, uh, a lot of Bible churches. Um, Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, but, okay, I know our doctrinal statement here at Lakeside Bible Church, and we don't abide by some of the other Reformed distinctives like the regular principle of worship. In other words, if you, if you don't see it in Scripture, you can't do it. We're Sunday school in Scripture, so we can't have it. You know, we're not going to use music. You know, if, if all, all we're going to sing is the Psalms. Um, that's the regular principle. How about covenant theology? Basically, that the church um, is the new Israel. The church replaced Israel. There's not a distinction between Israel. That's, that's part of covenant theology. Along with that is infant baptism, that we believe in you know, baptizing babies as part of the covenant family, just like circumcision in the Old Testament for the Jews, right? We do baptism for the babies in, uh, in the church. Or amillennialism, which is a view of the end times uh, where uh, the Lord is just going to come uh, at the end. Uh, there's no... You know, there's no uh, rapture um, of the church. There's no tribulation, all those kinds of things. It's just, um, Christ returns at the end. There, there's actually no literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. You say, well, these are all kind of distinctives of, of Reformed theology. Well, that's true, 
But I think a church or individual Christian need not adhere to those particular distinctives in order to be considered reformed. Again, simply stated, to be reformed means you affirm the biblical doctrines related to salvation as explained and applied by the apostles and the reformers. And so all that to say, we are essentially a reformed church. Would you agree? That being said, however, I personally think it's unwise to ever allow yourself or your church to be labeled anything else but, hey, we're about the Bible, right? Um, I don't want our reputation to be, oh, they're, they're, they're a Reformed church or, or they're, a, they're a Calvinistic church. Um, when people hear about our, our church or refer to our church, I don't, I don't want their first thought to be, well, they, oh, they believe in the doctrines of John Calvin or the teachings of John Calvin. Uh, I'd rather have them think about Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't, we're not expecting people to accept John Calvin in their heart to be a Christian, Right? I mean, it's, that's not what we're about. Um, I want people to hear and think, hey, they hold to the teachings of the Bible. And where Calvin is biblical, then yeah, call us a Calvinist, right? But it's not, John Calvin didn't come first. Jesus came first, right? And uh, so we should be primarily known as biblicists, not Calvinists. But again, I think it's just important that we have a historical perspective on our faith. We need to understand that we are heirs to the reformers. And consequently, we are guardians of the gospel that they rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation. And these truths that we are going to be looking at, while they were recovered during the, the, the Middle Ages, their, their truths are just clearly taught in the Scriptures. And no reformer or any other human being can, can be given credit for these doctrines themselves. These aren't the, doct- these aren't the doctrines of John Calvin. These are the doctrines of, of, of Scripture. These are the doctrines of Christ. At the same time, however, these precious truths had all been, had all been but lost before the time of the Reformation. And in his sweet providence, God chose to use certain men at a certain time in history to recover the very gospel itself. And it's this gospel that we are saved by. And it's for this gospel that we must earnestly contend so that it continues to be faithfully passed down to the next generation. Look at Jude Jude 3 as we close. Jude 3... That's way in the back of your Bible, right before Revelation. So go to Revelation and hit reverse. Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, I, was just, I just really wanted to write to you about our salvation and just rejoice in our, the fact that we're all saved. He said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Apparently, the gospel of salvation was in jeopardy. 
And he was calling them out to contend earnestly for the faith which was handed down to the saints once for all. And we should feel an overwhelming sense of responsibility, even as the, the readers of, 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 or the recipients of this letter from Jude. We should feel responsible to preserve the truth of the gospel for which so many before us fought and died, the prophets and the apostles and the reformers. And if you know anything about the church, if you've been, you know, kind of keep your ear to the ground on stuff, listen, we're, we're facing similar challenges, similar battles in the church today. There are some in the church today who are saying, you know what, the Reformation was a mistake. Should have never happened. That was just an, an ugly church split. We need to come back together, Catholics and evangelicals. We need to come back together and, and find common ground. And we agree on way more than we disagree on. And so let's come together and, 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 and fight, uh, fight these battles against uh, abortion and against, you know, uh, you know, just other social causes that we all agree on. And it's almost, uh, they're, they're, they're thinking that, um, you know, the, the, the Reformation never happened. Listen, there was a Reformation for a reason. And it seems like the, the, the church today is forgetting that. And they're like, oh, you know what, that's just, you know, that's just church history, and that was probably a bad deal anyway, it shouldn't have happened. Well, let's just come back together and be unified. Yeah, so there's definitely some people that we have read their books, and we've listened to their radio shows, and it, and it really was shocking when the whole Catholic Evangelical Accord thing came out in 1994, and the, the guys who signed it were like, whoa, what in the world, how can you sign that? And, and, and basically go against the whole, you know, 1,500 years of church history. And so, interesting, you've heard this statement before. It's a famous statement. Santiana said it. Some guy, I don't even know who that was, but he said, he said, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Those who can't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And uh, this is not the first time this has happened, by the way. Most uh, heresy is just repackaged in a new kind of bright and shiny you know, paper. One of my all-time favorite books that I've ever read, uh, and, and literally just wept when I read this book, called Light from Old Times by J.C. Rao. It's not even in print anymore. I think you've got to find it on some used book deal. But uh, Light from Old Times it seems like a strange kind of old stuffy book. In fact, I bought this at a used bookstore. And uh, you say, what is that all about? Well, J.C. Rao was a, a pastor, a rector in the Church of England in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was concerned that he saw the Church of England drifting back to Catholicism. And, and he, he actually said, I wouldn't be surprised that if they're going to be celebrating Mass once again in Westminster Abbey. Um, obviously, because the Church of England had moved away from Catholicism and it was more Protestant. And, but he saw that they were warming back up to, to Catholicism and to basically transubstantiation. This whole idea that, that communion is... Resacrificing Christ and the blood 
you know, the, the, the wine actually turns into Christ's blood and the, 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 the bread actually turns into his body. And, and so he was concerned. And so he spoke out as a, 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 a reformer in his day, 200 years, 150 years ago. And, and he wanted to shed some light from old times on the Church of England. He said, guys, let's not forget the, Re- the Reformation. And these guys who, who, who literally burned at the stake because of their stand against transubstantiation. These guys, these guys gave up their lives for this. And we're like cozying up with the Catholics and saying it's all okay and, and let's just all be one church and unified. And why, why were these, so you're saying these people died for no reason? And so this whole book is all about these, these um, why the reformers died. Why were they, this is the chapter, why were our reformers burned? He talks about all the English reformers under Bloody Mary. And he just gives these little um, biographical sketches and they're just so convicting and challenging to see how strong these men were who stood up for the truth. And his whole point was this, this is, and I'll just close with this quote. This was his point for writing this book. He said, the very life of the church of England is at stake and nothing less. Take away the gospel from a church and that church is not worth preserving. A well without water, a scabbard without a sword, a steam engine without a fire, a ship without compass and rudder, a watch without a mainspring, a stuffed carcass without life. All these are useless things, but there is nothing so useless as a church without the gospel And this is the very question that stares us in the face. Is the Church of England to retain the gospel or not? And he goes on to challenge his church members and his fellow laborers in the Church of England to contend earnestly for the gospel because the voice of the martyrs cries out to them. And it cries out to us today that we have a part to play. We have a role to serve. And as we attempt to shed some some light from old times uh, these next five weeks on our church, may God be pleased to spark a reformation, a biblical truth in your heart and in my heart, in the life of this church and the life of our community. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this little trip down... Uh, church history lane. Lord, I pray that um, while there's been a lot of facts and names and dates, Lord, that Lord, we would see past all that to the truth of your word, the, the biblical principles and, and truths of the gospel. Thank you for your grace and, and mercy in re- helping the church recover uh, the gospel so that we could be here tonight singing about the gospel and preaching about the gospel. And we have the privilege of going out of here tonight and tomorrow and sharing the gospel. Lord, I pray we'd not take the gospel for granted. But remember that that people gave their lives for the gospel. And that would just make the gospel more precious to us. And that we would just be so grateful for the gospel and how it's changed our lives. And we would just want to preserve it, the truth of it, so we could pass it on to our kids and our grandkids and share it with our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates, Lord. I pray your blessing upon this series. I pray that you would use it for your glory. 
and your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.